Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello, this is Carolyn reading to you from the Cape Cod Times on Wednesday, February 28th. As always, we'll start today with the local weather. Today is going to be a cloudy, windy, but mild day with showers for most of the day. Highs will be around 53 degrees. Tonight, we'll see the rain tapering off to just a couple of showers. Lows will be 31 degrees. The sun rose this morning at 6.18 a.m. and will set tonight at 5.30 p.m. Tomorrow, Thursday, February 29th, will be a breezy and colder day with some periods of sunshine. Highs will be 36 degrees and lows 22 degrees. Friday will be a day with plenty of sunshine and highs of 41 degrees. Lows will be 35 degrees. Saturday will be a cloudy day with a shower or two, but it will be milder with highs of 49 degrees and lows of 42 degrees. Sunday will also be a mild day, mostly cloudy with a little rain, highs of 52 degrees and lows of 42 degrees. And next, in other local news, we'll go to the Massachusetts Lottery. The numbers game for yesterday, Tuesday, February 27th, at the midday drawing, were 1165. Again, that's 1165. The evening drawing for yesterday, Tuesday, the 27th, was 221. One three, again. That's two two one three. The mass cash numbers for yesterday, Tuesday the twenty seventh, were five seven, thirteen thirty three, thirty four. The Mega Millions numbers again for yesterday, Tuesday the twenty seventh, were six eighteen. 26, 27, 49, with a bonus number of 4. And the Lucky for Life numbers for yesterday, the 27th. 10, 16, 28, 45, 46, with a lucky ball of 5. If you played any of these games, we wish you the best of luck. And now we'll go to our front page local stories in today's Cape Cod Times. The first story is entitled, Four Seas Ice Cream Shop Owners Seeking a Buyer, Couple to Retire from Cherished Centerville Business, by Zane Razak, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Doug Warren grew up playing in a back room of Four Seas Ice Cream in Centerville, as his mother made sandwiches in one room and his father prepared ice cream in another. 
That way, they could see me and keep an eye on me, said Warren. Warren and his wife, Peggy, have operated and owned the local landmark since 2000. The couple took over the business from Warren's father, Richard Warren, who died in 2008. What is amongst the most cherished and oldest of Cape Cod ice cream shops near Craigville Beach is now for sale, a decision Doug Warren called emotional. So much of his life has revolved around the 360 South Main Street building, he said, and he's wrestling between wanting the best offer versus a seller who wants to keep it the same. If some developer came along and wanted to give us much more than somebody that wanted to keep it as four C's, it'd be very hard because your heart is selling one thing and your brain is like, well, I get more money for retirement, said Warren. That's kind of a frustrating part of this whole process. Cary Commercial of Hyannis is representing the sellers. Doug Warren said the couple's children are really in a great position, so we thought we have to start looking outside the family. After selling, they're willing to stay on for about a year to help the new owners learn the ropes. We're getting on in years and it's a 24-hour summertime business. It's tiring, he said. We're getting close to that age to retire. History Behind the Business Boston insurance salesman W. Wells Watson bought the former blacksmith shop in 1934 and transformed it into an ice cream shop. The name comes from the poem Cape Cod Calls by Mabel E. Finney. The first two lines of the poem are, We face four seas. Our slogan runs, Four Seas of Azure Blue. In 1960, Watson sold the shop to Richard Warren, a Boston University graduate who had worked at the store during summers before Doug Warren took the reins. Celebrities at Four Seas Taylor Swift, Ryan Reynolds, Blake Lively, Bob Hope, Jackie Kennedy The shop has long been a must-stop for celebrities visiting Cape Cod. The list includes Bob Hope after performing at the Melody Tent, Taylor Swift in 2012 when she dated Connor Kennedy, and Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively, the latter Doug Warren described as, quote, just one bubbly person, end quote. And when the Kennedys vacationed on the Cape, they frequented Four Seas. Jackie Kennedy's favorite flavor was peach, which was also served at Caroline Kennedy's wedding rehearsal dinner. Famous Food Challenge, Close-Knit Staff, and Customers 
The store is also well known for a 16-scoop food challenge called the Hurricane. Just over 80 people have tried to conquer the dare, which requires finishing a giant bowl of ice cream, two bananas, two brownies, four cherries, and four toppings within 30 minutes. Competitors also must endure a mandatory five-minute no-hurl period. Only two people have completed it, said Doug Warren. All paid ski trip for employees. The shop mostly hires honor roll students from local schools. They take them on an all-paid ski trip during the first weekend in January, renting a condo or a house. We take care of them. It's a great bonding experience for them, said Doug Warren. They see us as a different person instead of just a boss that's a boss. Peggy Warren said they like to turn to the employees for feedback on new items for the menu, saying they once tried out a Coke sorbet after a staffer's suggestion. We like to collaborate with them on different things, said Peggy Warren. It's fun to get that kind of new edge to what we've been doing for so many years and yet still keeping it the same. Doug Warren said he'll most miss the fun part of business, seeing how much joy it brings to so many people. He remembers once handing an ice cream cone to the child of a longtime customer and watching him light up. I swear to God, he looked like he had a sparkler in his hand on the 4th of July, said Doug Warren. He was just so happy bounding around the front of the store, and he was just so filled with joy. Our second local news story on the front page of today's Cape Cod Times, More Right Whales Returning to Area, by Heather McCarran, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. As spring approaches, Dozens of critically endangered North Atlantic right whales are making their way to Cape Cod Bay, an annual destination on their migratory route between the southern and northern extremes of their habitat. Since about mid-January, the whales have been slowly trickling in, but now an increasing pace of migrating animals has prompted scientists and state authorities to urge mariners to slow down to avoid potentially striking any of the visitors. Boat strikes are one of the top causes of severe injury and death of right whales, along with entanglement in traditional fishing gear. The call for caution comes after a New England Aquarium aerial survey team recently spotted a total of 31 right whales making their way north in shipping lanes east of Nantucket and Cape Cod. 
many, if not all, of those individuals are likely to make their way into the bay, which has attracted most of the remaining population in recent years, according to observers at the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown, including 10 out of 11 of last year's mother and new calf pairs. Already there are a number of whales in the bay, said Ryan Schossberg, an observer and data manager with the center's right whale ecology team. On Sunday, he said, we documented 50 individual right whales during a survey of Cape Cod Bay. Considering we only covered two-thirds of the bay, the animals aren't spending much time at the surface, and we didn't see many of the individuals we had seen the previous week. I expect that the total number of right whales in the bay is even higher, he said on Monday. Scientists have suggested the bay may be an important nursery for the whales. It also offers a warmer, protected area for them to feed, socialize, and rest for a few weeks before continuing to summer waters off Canada. New England Aquarium researchers spotted one group of migrating right whales on February 20th in the Great South Channel, an area east of Nantucket between the Nantucket Shoals and George's Bank. The whales were surface feeding about 35 miles east of the island. On the same day, another group of whales was observed about 20 miles east of Chatham, including a group of actively socializing whales. An aerial survey from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Northeast Fisheries Science Center out of Woods Hole was the first to spot the whales on January 31st and was monitoring their movements. The areas where the whales were seen most recently overlap with shipping lanes into and out of Boston. The whales are usually not observed feeding and socializing in that area at this time of year, raising particular alarm about their safety. We know a lot about right whales, but they still surprise us all the time, said Orla O'Brien, an associate research scientist in the aquarium's Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life. While historically the Great South Channel has been a hotspot for feeding whales, it is unusual to see them there during the winter. That makes the work of aerial surveys important in documenting this sighting especially as the whales are surface-feeding in the middle of a shipping lane. The Great South Channel is normally put under a mandatory slow zone for boats and ships, known as a seasonal management area, 
between April 1st and July 31st, meaning right whales sighted there outside of this time are only protected by temporary voluntary measures, according to the aquarium. The recent sightings prompted NOAA to extend a voluntary speed zone called a dynamic management area for mariners to reduce their speed to 10 knots in the area. The DMA, one of several active voluntary slow zones between Maine and Virginia, will remain in effect until March 7th. According to the aquarium, these protections are especially important in light of the recent loss of two female right whales, one found off of Georgia after being struck by a vessel and one that washed up dead on Martha's Vineyard on January 28th and suffered from a chronic entanglement. A newborn calf spotted in January with severe injuries off South Carolina was also struck by a boat, and scientists have been monitoring its health since. About 356 North Atlantic right whales are alive today, according to the latest population study released last fall. NOAA is eyeing modifications to the existing vessel speed rule to better protect right whales, including expanding the size of the areas covered, increasing the time period for areas with existing seasonal speed restrictions, extending restrictions to include most vessels measuring 35 to 65 feet in length, and implementing mandatory speed restrictions in the DMAs, or Dynamic Management Areas, put in place when and where whales are observed and likely to remain. And there's a photo that accompanies this story. It is an aerial photo of the whales. The caption says, these North Atlantic right whales were spotted on February 20th, feeding in the Great South Channel, an area east of Nantucket between the Nantucket Shoals and George's Bank. And next we'll go to our local stories on the Cape and Islands page. The first story, Town Seal in Bourne to Undergo Scrutiny by Paul Gately, special to Cape Cod Times. Change may be coming to the Bourne Town Seal, which for decades has inaccurately depicted Wampanoag tribe members. It was designed by renowned maritime artist Charles S. Raleigh in the late 19th century. The Bourne Select Board voted 5 to 0 on Tuesday night to refer discussion about revi revising the seal to the Bourne Historical Commission, an appointed body with access to town records archives. 
The commission is expected to work with the Herring Pond Wampanoag tribe in consultation. The select board is optimistic progress can be made and hopes for a public update by June. The seal will, at the very least, be revised if not dramatically changed. The wider hope involves a discussion about alternative images led by the Commission, which recently lost its chairman after an uproar over his use of an anti-Semitic slur during a meeting. Given the passage of time and renewed seal scrutiny into the Wampanoag representation, the board's referral borders on an imperative. Melissa Ferretti, a select board member and president of the Herring Pond Wampanoag tribe, said it would be reasonable to anticipate commission input by June. Ferretti hopes any discussion and recommended changes to the seal will be respectful of all ideals and provide a measure of education. Certain elements of the seal are blatant and incorrect in Wampanoag depiction, she said. It's the human imaging that's really the issue with indigenous people and I don't think the indigenous perspective should be completely removed from it to perhaps include the canal, as has been mentioned. Board member Jared McDonald said, The first step involves research, because many elements of how Bourne developed remain widely unknown by some residents or, quote, simply overlooked, end quote. Chair Mary Jane Mastrangelo acknowledged the likelihood of differing opinions about a new seal. But I think one of the things we have to realize is that we have a town seal that is historically inaccurate, she said. Mastrangelo wondered if a change would, out of necessity, involve Bourne's history. Ferretti said this was not entirely necessary. The Mashpee River was incorporated into that town's new seal. Debate over the town seal dates to when now-retired natural resources employee Jennifer Chisser thought it would be a good idea to create or otherwise restore a tattered old town flag that had been on display in Town Hall on Perry Avenue for decades. Town meeting voters agreed, approving $13,000 in Community Preservation Act money for the project. After the town meeting, local historian Jack McDonald notified town officials about the SEAL's inadequacies in how it depicts Wampanoags at Apuxtic in 1627, who met with Plymouth colonists 
and New Amsterdam traders to negotiate trade issues. But then sentiment arose that it made no sense to refurbish or create a new flag complete with an inadequate or inaccurate town seal. So the flag was carefully wrapped and placed in safekeeping in town administrator Marlene McCollum's office. The Bourne Historical Commission is a panel appointed by the select board. MacDonald, on February 20th, weighed in, saying the panel would help with a new seal through research and public updates. It's not just research, Mastrangelo said. We need to get public input. Ferretti agrees. She said it would be folly to change the seal and find out that one side of what might ultimately be considered newly appropriate for depiction simply irritated another side. She advocates discussion, research, public involvement, and shared opinions. The self-taught marine artist Raleigh was born in England in 1830. As a young man, he went to sea in a career that lasted 30 years. This part of his life, according to town records, inspired his paintings of maritime scenes and large vessels during the sail-ship era. He resided at the upper stretch of County Road in Bourne Village later in life. According to the National Gallery of Art website, Raleigh produced more than 1,100 paintings of precise and polished detail. Some 600 were whale ships. Town records show that in 1870, Raleigh married and settled in New Bedford, earning a living as a house painter and decorator. By 1881, he had established himself in Bourne, where he continued to work as an ornamental painter, decorating carriages and house and church interiors. He also designed official seals, one for the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., the other for the town of Bourne. He died in Bourne in 1925. And there's a picture on the Cape and Islands page of two goats, and the picture is entitled, Looking for a New Home. Jerry and Ben, the two goats, left to right, are looking for a new home. The goats are six years old and are up for adoption at the Animal Rescue League of Boston's Brewster Shelter. The goats were owner-surrendered, said Mike Defina, media relations manager for the Animal Rescue League of Boston. The goats are super friendly and love people, Defina says. A new owner would need to adopt the two goats together 
and also have enough space for them as well as an enclosure due to their ability to jump fences. And our next story on the Cape and Islands page today is entitled, One Running for Barnstable Duke's Nantucket House Seat, by Heather McCarran, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. This year, the State House seat for the Barnstable, Dukes, and Nantucket District, representing parts of Falmouth, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, and the Elizabeth Islands, is among the state legislative positions up for election. The primary election is September 3rd, and the general election will be held on November 5th. As of February 25th, Democrat Thomas Moakley of Falmouth has announced his candidacy. What were the issues in the last election? Climate change, offshore wind development, water quality, and affordable housing are some of the top issues in the district that current legislators have paid attention to and that have been discussed in media coverage. We're going to pause this story now and go to the obituaries. We will resume reading this story at the conclusion of the obituaries. And now, in other local news, we will go to the obituaries. Albert Raymond Guiad, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing that last name incorrectly. It is spelled G-U-I-O-D. Albert Raymond Guiad of Marston's Mills, Massachusetts, passed peacefully on February 23, 2024, in the company of family at the home of his daughter in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. He was a little over a month shy of his 95th birthday. He was for 63 years the loving and adored husband of the late Mary Louise, née MacDonald, Guyad of Marston's Mills. Visiting hours on Thursday, February 29th, from 4 to 7 p.m. at Doan, Beale, and Ames, 160 West Main Street, Hyannis. Funeral Mass on Friday, March 1st at 12 noon at Our Lady of Victory, 230 South Main Street, Centerville, followed by committal service with military honors at Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. Donations in lieu of flowers may be made to Rose of Sharon Equestrian School www.roseofsharonschool.org Thomas E. Brew, Jr. Thomas E. Brew, Jr., age 81, of Catuit, Massachusetts, formerly of Newton, Massachusetts, and Boca Raton, Florida, passed away peacefully at home 
on February 24, 2024, surrounded by his loving family. He was the beloved husband of Francis Valati Brew, with whom he shared 45 wonderful years of marriage. A visitation will be held on Friday, March 1, 2024, from 4 to 7 p.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 74 Algonquin Avenue, Route 151, in Mashpee. A funeral service will be held on March 2, 2024, from 11 a.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 74 Algonquin Avenue, or Route 151, in Mashpee. Burial will follow on Saturday, March 2, 2024, at Mosswood Cemetery in Ketuit. For friends and family unable to attend the services in person, live streaming will be made available and can be viewed at www.streampros.net slash ccgmashp or on Tom's obituary page on the Funeral Home website, www.chapmanfuneral.com. In lieu of flowers, donations in Tom's memory to the American Parkinson Disease Association, Post Office Box 61420, Staten Island, New York, 10306, or online at www.apdaparkinson.org. The family would like to thank the nurses and staff at the VNA of Cape Cod and Privatus Care Solutions for the excellent care and love provided to Tom in his final days. For online guest book, live streaming, and directions, please visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. Richard Erdman Richard H. Erdman, age 71, of Mashpee, died on February 22, 2024, at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, following an unexpected illness. He was the beloved husband of Donna Klein Erdman, with whom he shared 26 wonderful years of companionship and marriage. A visitation will be held on Tuesday, March 5, 2024, from 4 to 7 p.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 74 Algonquin Avenue, or Route 151, in Mashpee. A funeral mass will be held on Wednesday, March 6, 2024, at 11 o'clock a.m. at Christ the King Church, 5 Jobs Fishing Road in Mashpee. Private burial will take place in the future Great Neck Woods Cemetery in Mashpee. In lieu of flowers, donations in Richard's memory may be made to any of the following charities. Christ the King Parish Food Pantry, Post Office Box 1800, Mashpee, Massachusetts, 02649 
or online at www.christthekingparish.com slash pantry-project. Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, care of Mass General Development Office, 125 Nashua Street, Suite 540, Boston, Massachusetts, 02114-1101, or online at www.giving.massgeneral.org. For online guestbook and directions, please visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. Robert, or Bob Weinstein, born April 20, 1930, passed away February 24, 2024. Robert Weinstein of Centerville, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully Saturday, surrounded by his loving family. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m., on Friday, March 1, 2024, at the Chapman Funeral and Cremations, John Lawrence Chapel, 3778 Falmouth Road, Marston's Mills, Massachusetts. A funeral service will be on Saturday, March 2, 2024, at 11 a.m. in the funeral home. Burial will follow in Mosswood Cemetery, Catuit, Massachusetts. For online guestbook and directions, please visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. Richard Joseph Crane. Richard Joseph Crane, age 58, of Windsor Locks, Connecticut, formerly of Vernon, Connecticut, died unexpectedly on Thursday, February 22nd. Calling hours will be at the Ladd-Turkington and Carmen Funeral Home, 551 Talcottville Road, Vernon, Connecticut, 06066, on Sunday, March 3rd, from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. A gathering of friends and family will immediately follow. Those wishing to donate in his memory may do so to the Connecticut Humane Society, 701 Russell Road, Newington, Connecticut, 06111, or at www.cthumane.org. To leave a condolence, please visit www.carmenfuneralhome.com. Jane Gavani. Jane Vermilier Gavani, age 80, passed away at home on February 22, 2024, after a brief battle with cancer. Preceding her in death were her husband, Gerald Marino Gavani, and her parents. Graveside service will be held at the Sandwich Town Cemetery on Tuesday, March 5th at 11 a.m. In lieu of flowers, the family requests 
that donations may be made to the cancer charity of your choice. Arrangements by the Nickerson-Born Funeral Home, 154 Route 6A, Sandwich, Massachusetts. Judith Ann Donatelli. Judith Ann Donatelli, age 86, of Pocasset, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully at home, surrounded by family, on February 24, 2024. In lieu of flowers, the family is requesting donations to VNA Hospice and Palliative Care of Cape Cod. A viewing will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. on March 4, 2024, at Nickerson Bourne Funeral Home in Bourne, Massachusetts. A funeral mass will begin at 10 a.m. on March 5, 2024, at St. John the Evangelist Church in Pocasset. Brunch will be provided immediately following the service. Charles Edward Bailargian. Charles Edward Bailargian of South Yarmouth, Massachusetts, passed away at age 87 on Saturday, February 17, 2024. Funeral services will be held at St. Pius X Catholic Church, 5 Barbara Street, South Yarmouth, Massachusetts, at 11 a.m. on March 9, 2024. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be made to the American Heart Association. And now we'll resume the story that we were reading prior to the obituaries. That story is entitled, One Running for Barnstable Dukes, Nantucket, House seat. What are the issues for 2024? Falmouth Republican Town Committee Chairman Edwin Stadelman said in an email that one of the top issues from the perspective of local Republicans is immigration and the effect on local communities and the state, particularly in the areas of housing and employment budget increases, and potential tax increases. Education is another issue, Stadelman said. Parents are not happy with the direction in our schools, both curriculum and social issue-wise. These are issues current and going forward. A member of the Falmouth Democratic Town Committee was not immediately available to comment on the issues from their perspective. What towns or areas does this seat cover? The Barnstable Dukes Nantucket District Representative represents Falmouth Precincts 1, 2, and 6 in Barnstable County, as well as Aquina, Chilmark, Edgartown, Oak Bluffs, Tisbury, West Tisbury on Martha's Vineyard, and Gosnold in Dukes County, and Nantucket in Nantucket County.
What does the person elected to this seat do? The Massachusetts House of Representatives is comprised of 160 members, each representing a district of approximately 40,000 people. As required by the Massachusetts Constitution, the House may not adjourn itself for more than two days, meeting year-round in either formal or informal sessions to introduce, consider, and vote on legislation. How much does it pay? Massachusetts legislative salaries in 2023 started at $73,655.01 per year, plus $15,000 to $20,000 for expenses, depending on how far they live from Boston, according to National Conference of State Legislatures. Legislators in leadership roles receive more pay. How often are elections? State legislators in both the House and Senate serve in their roles for two years. All seats are up for election in years that end with an even number. Who is the incumbent? The Barnstable Dukes and Nantucket seat is presently held by State Representative Dylan Fernandez, Democrat of Falmouth, who's held the position since 2017. Fernandez is vacating the position to seek election to the Plymouth and Barnstable district seat in the State Senate, representing Kingston, Pembroke, Plymouth, and Plimpton in Plymouth County, and Bourne, Falmouth, Mashpee, and Sandwich in Barnstable County. That post is presently held by State Senator Susan Moran, who is not seeking re-election. At present, Fernandez serves as Vice Chairman of the Joint Committee on Environment and Natural Resources and is also on the House Committee on Global Warming and Climate Change, the House Committee on Ways and Means, the Joint Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy, and the Joint Committee on Ways and Means. Who has filed papers to run? Democrat Thomas Moakley of Falmouth announced his candidacy in December. Moakley is an assistant district attorney with the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office, where he's worked since 2022. He is the great-nephew of the late Congressman Joe Moakley, who served in Congress from 1973 until his death in 2001. According to the Massachusetts Office of Campaign and Political Finance, as of the end of January, Moakley's campaign had raised $23,757.32. Our next local story is entitled, 
airman who died of self-immolation at Israeli embassy had ties to Cape. By Denise Coffey, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Aaron Bushnell, who set himself on fire Sunday in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., had connections to Cape Cod. He attended Nauset Public Schools from 2003 to 2007 and 2013 to 2014. The information was released by the school district and confirmed by Nauset Regional School Committee member Chris Easley. Bushnell, age 25, of Whitman, was an active duty member of the U.S. Air Force. Officers responded to the scene to assist the U.S. Security, excuse me, the U.S. Secret Service after, quote, an individual set themselves on fire in front of an embassy in the block, end quote, according to the Metropolitan Police Department. The man was brought to an area hospital with critical, life-threatening injuries. Bushnell died later that night, according to police. Bushnell began live-streaming to Twitch as he approached the embassy, declaring that he, quote, will no longer be complicit in genocide, end quote, a person familiar with the matter told the Associated Press. The person was not authorized to publicly discuss the details of the investigation and spoke to the Associated Press on condition of anonymity. Officials believe Bushnell started the stream, set his phone on the ground, poured liquid over himself, and lit himself on fire. USA Today reported. The video was removed from Twitch, but a copy was obtained and reviewed by investigators. The police said in an email that it is aware of the video, but is not confirming the authenticity of this video as it is part of the investigation. The Washington Fire and Emergency Medical Services also responded to the embassy, but the fire was extinguished by the time they arrived at approximately 1 p.m., Public Information Officer Vito Maggio said. And next we will go to a front-page national news story. Government Shutdown Deadline Looms Again by Riley Begin, USA Today. Stop us if you've heard this one before. Congress has until Friday to reach a spending agreement, or the nation will face a partial government shutdown. It's the fourth such deadline lawmakers have approached in recent months. The last three times, they opted for short-term compromises, pushing off more permanent solutions 
after failing to craft a compromise on funding levels. This time, lawmakers have reached a deal over how much they will spend overall. In the weeks since, they've worked on allocating those funds to agencies. But policy disagreements and spending requests appear to have gummed up the works. With the clock ticking loudly, leaders have still not released bills to fund agriculture, food and drug, energy and water, military construction, veterans' affairs, transportation, and housing programs. Another, and another shutdown deadline looms close behind. Funding for the Departments of Health and Human Services Commerce, Labor, State, and Defense expires March 8th. A government shutdown means all federal officials and agencies that aren't deemed essential have to stop work. Thousands of federal employees would be furloughed. Essential federal workers, who range from air traffic controllers to emergency personnel in national parks would work without pay, then receive back pay once a shutdown ends. Some, some subcontractors could be out of work and would not receive back pay. A shutdown can also have significant impacts on other Americans. For example, some food assistance benefits could be delayed, including WIC and certain food safety inspections, federal housing loan support, and veterans' programs could be paused. The 12 appropriations bills that keep the government functioning for the next year are due at the end of September. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican Louisiana, has tried to navigate the funding fight ever since he got the job. Under his leadership, lawmakers extended funding again in November and January. Ultra-conservative House lawmakers are putting Johnson under immense pressure to deliver a government funding bill with GOP policy priorities attached, ranging from abortion restrictions to food assistance cuts. Those proposals are a no-go with Democrats. Senate Republicans, too, largely support funding the government without the policy add-ons. Some hard-right members are arguing they should threaten a shutdown to get what they're asking for, a position that's unpopular with most voters. If they can't get policy wins, wins hard-right members want an extension until the end of September. But that would institute across-the-board 1% spending cuts that Democrats and moderate Republicans oppose. Both sides 
say the other, is holding up the process. At any time, lawmakers could announce an agreement on the first four bills. Adhering to a promise to allow House members to review any legislation for 72 hours, the House could vote as early as Friday morning. If the bills moved that quickly, the Senate would then vote on the bills Saturday morning, creating a shutdown of only a few early morning hours with little interruption in services. If lawmakers can't reach a deal, leaders may need to explore other options. Ultra-conservative leaders would push for a full-year extension. Most say another short-term bill is more likely. This has been Carolyn reading to you from the Cape Cod Times on Wednesday, February 28th. I wish you all a wonderful day.